Impact investing has a long history in private markets, but when it comes to investing in public companies that are listed on a stock exchange, it's a lot harder to measure your impact and to influence the companies you're investing in. But of course, the flip side is that the public equity market is huge, and so being able to influence change has major potential for impact. And so on the Good Future podcast this month, I'm speaking with pioneering investment managers that are leading listed impact investment funds. And this week, I'm speaking with Tim Crockford, all about the Regnan Global Equities Impact Solutions Fund. Tim is head of Equity Impact Solutions. He's based in the UK, and he has a unique approach to analyzing companies and to measuring impact. He and his team go to remarkable lengths to explore not only companies of interest, but examining the market and indeed the complete supply chain that surrounds the problem they hope the company is working to solve. They use the problem as the baseline and work to find organizations that are best positioned to solve it. Tim is really passionate about this stuff and I hope you get as much out of this conversation as I did. Before we dive in, I'd like to introduce you to the sponsor of this series, and that's the ACCR, the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. The ACCR engages with companies as a shareholder, advocating for them to improve their environmental and social practices, and in the process, make their company more sustainable. It's no easy feat, but through a modest holding of shares and with the help of a high-performing team, they put forward shareholder resolutions that focus on positive social and environmental outcomes. They're a group of pragmatic lawyers and finance experts, and by utilising shareholder resolutions, they approach some of Australia's biggest companies in a forum they can't ignore. Now, to put a resolution forward, at least 100 shareholders in a company must come together. So, if you hold shares in ASX-listed companies and want to be involved in holding them to account for their environmental and social impacts, then let ACCR know about it. Head to accr.org.au slash shareholders to get involved. They're independent, not-for-profit, and they're taking action for more sustainable businesses in Australia. Now, Tim was kind enough to go into a lot of detail about his approach in this podcast, and so I do need to emphasize that, as always, nothing in this show is financial advice. Please do seek your own professional advice before making investment decisions. You can catch the full disclaimer at the end of the episode. If you enjoyed it, please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's super simple. You can leave a comment right there in the app and I would appreciate it because it's the best way to help people find the show. All right, let's get going. Here's my conversation with Tim Crockford. Here we go. Tim, thanks for giving us some time today. Great to have you here. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, balancing some time zones. Now, look, you're head of equity impact solutions at Regnan. Just as a really quick introduction, it'd be great to get a feel for Regnan. And, you know, have you always managed funds with this linkage between sustainability and, and finance? You know, has there, has there been a journey there? And also maybe you can help our listeners understand the linkage between Regnan and the team in Australia, and of course, Pendle. 
Sure. So maybe starting with with my own journey, and it's sort of one that started back in about 2009. I started my career on the investment side, on the buy side, at a company which was ultimately in 2009 acquired by what is now Federated Hermes. That sort of opened my eyes to the world of ESG investing and responsible investing more generally. And that's really where, pretty much on day one, I, uh, being there, I sort of started trying to understand how. The interplay between, you know, what we still call ESG analysis and financial returns and alpha generation uh, would work. There is always a journey there. There is always a, a linkage that needs to be made in understanding that process, and that sort of gradually evolved over the over the years. I was there for a few years. I ran a European equity ESG integrated fund, and then in 2016, we were asked whether we would be able to get together and. Understand the feasibility of creating a global format public equity impact investing product. You know, we're talking in 2016. This is a time when impact investing generally was something which was much more niche, confined to private markets. So it was a it was a journey that started very much or accelerated very much there when uh, myself and and the guys who now form the Regnan Global. Equity Impact Solutions team. Ultimately, we began our journey there together, and we've now created the product and the fund that we run collectively today. That's collectively across London and Sydney, is it? London, in terms of the fund, so we, we're four people on the investment team.、Uh, we run the fund very much together. It's a slightly different structure in terms of how the four of us on the investment team work. In terms of actually managing the day-to-day -day fund, we have a very flat structure. We have a very consensus-based decision-making process, which ultimately was designed such that if one person on that that four-person investment team disagrees with any decision, we won't make it. It's not a majority rule process. It's very much we all have to agree.、Uh, and the reason why that was designed is is firstly to ensure that you know none of our skill sets in what is a very unique collection of skill sets is de-emphasized or taken out of balance. And we can talk about our investment process, perhaps, and how we make those decisions. But ultimately, there's many different types of analysis that go into our decision-making process. And also, then, as you say, the,、uh, the the team, of course, then works side by side with the broader Regnan Insight and Advisory Centre, and that really helps us understand the nature of the challenges that we're trying to address through our capital allocation. You know, so we spend most of our time working with the guys in Australia, trying to get to the bottom of the nature of the problem, and then trying to understand collectively what is the right solution, and is it a solution that companies, listed equity companies in particular, can actually affect themselves? That's exactly it, right? Is investing in in public companies is it even a lever for change, right? Can you have an influence through that avenue?、Uh, and that's what today is all about. So, really keen to dig into that strategy and and how you guys see it, the philosophy and the sort of machinations and what comes out the other end. So, we'll dive in. I've got a few questions at the beginning to break down. The nature of the fund—it's called the Global Equity Impact Solutions Fund. I was going to ask the coverage, but I'm sure it's global. It's right there in the name.、Um, is there emerging markets in there? It's unconstrained in terms of where it it looks geographically. Okay, very good. And how many stocks? It's currently 32 names, 32 companies, and yeah, we've had them for a long time. You know, dating back to our, our previous employer, it is a very long-term-minded investment process with the aim of really trying to forge a relationship with the management teams that are running the companies we're investing in to really, you know, as you say, try and affect change through the engagement that we do with them. That's it. Engagement's the the important word there. Fund under management. What's the ballpark? 
It's been growing fairly rapidly, thankfully, since we've been up and running as of October last year uh, at Pendle Group or under the Regnum banner. We were now hitting just over uh, $450 million across the three different vehicles that we run. So yeah, it's been a fairly exciting start, a lot of interest, uh, but perhaps more importantly, there's yeah a lot of excitement generally around this area from new clients. Very good. And when you talk to those new clients, you know what's the key outcome? Do you, do you sort of have a, an impact theme, a key outcome that you're targeting? For the fund itself, there isn't a specific impact that it's trying to achieve. The idea is that the broad impact is, is defined by where we can identify, going back to what, what we said earlier, where we can identify companies in the public equity space specifically, which is the remit of this, this strategy, that are able to affect either an environmental outcome or a social outcome against specific SDG targets. You know, we're not limiting ourselves to a, a single sustainable development goal or a collection of either environmental outcomes or social outcomes. What we're actually doing is using the SDGs as a broad lens to uncover where public equity listed companies can have the biggest difference, can generate the biggest difference. Okay. And so we've got impact and, and SDGs there and this journey that we're all on. The challenge really is the nuance of what these terms really mean. And, and people tend to use the term ESG and impact sort of synonymously, but but you know that approach that you're describing there clearly goes a step further, identifying SDGs as targets and, and trying to measure that impact. So how do you define impact as distinct from ESG? I'd answer your question by saying we don't define impact investing. We use the Global Impact Investing Network's definition, which we believe to be the most widely widely appreciated, widely used uh, definition of impact investing. So it is ultimately distinct from ESG investing. And when I say ESG investing specifically, I mean ESG integrated strategies. I've run both of them. So I can tell you from the front line that it does involve a distinctly different investment process. Ultimately, the distinction between the two is that when it comes to environmental, social and governance integration, what we typically mean when we talk about that is the integration of a layer of analysis, be it quantitative or qualitative, within an investment process, typically an existing, a pre-existing investment process, whereby the manager seeks to understand where the major risks are within the universe that they're looking at. You know, so historically, at least, the term ESG integration was used to define that additional part of the process. Impact investing generally is a lot more intertwined with the emerging opportunity because ultimately what impact investors will look at are businesses that are able to drive a specific contribution towards solving some of the major environmental or social challenges that we have. So if you dial back to the, uh, the Global Impact Investing Network definition, sure, impact investing is investing with the intention to generate a measurable positive impact. But ultimately, that's a little bit sort of broad. So what we specifically mean is, you know, in a more practical sense, is building a portfolio exclusively out of companies who have a business strategy that is centered around a specific aim, be it environmental or social. And in the public equity space, typically that manifests itself in 
focusing on companies who have solutions, as the name of the fund suggests, products and services specifically that are able to affect those outcomes. So you identify, you know, a universe of companies and select the best of the best that fit, I think you said they're 30 or 40 stocks. And once you're invested, once they're in the portfolio, I mean, you have said, you know, you've chosen sort of the best of the best, but do you still try to influence them? Do you still work closely with them? I mean, these are publicly listed companies. They've got a lot more investors than just you guys. Yeah. Tell us about the relationship. With this strategy, the impact we are targeting is twofold. So there's the impact that the companies themselves generate through the solutions they sell, the products and services they sell, which are trying to drive a specific environmental outcome or a specific social outcome. Then there is the impact that we have ourselves, which is what you're asking about, as investors. So pre-investment, actually, before investing in any company, we will have identified areas where we believe we as investors can engage with that company to drive an improvement. Now, no company, no matter how mission-driven that business is, no company is ever perfect. If you are bringing a product to market, if you are offering a service to a market, almost by definition, as part of that value chain, as part of that production process, you are going to generate impacts. You're going to generate negative impacts. So, what we're trying to do with the businesses that we eventually go on to invest in is understand first and foremost what those impacts are, then go on to understand how they balance with the positive impacts that these companies generate. And in the case that we feel that they don't tilt the balance towards the negative, we go on to understand how material these specific negative impacts are to the underlying businesses. And finally, what we want to understand is, can we as investors actually affect the change? There are some things that investors perhaps might not be able to drive a positive outcome through their engagement. There are some companies whereby those companies might not want to listen to the views of one small impact investor on their shareholder list. We avoid those, by the way. We try to to avoid those. So ultimately, it's about assessing what is actually happening, what is most urgent, what is most material, and then what is ultimately achievable, what is realistically achievable by us. You've talked about that challenge of, of these companies being publicly listed. And that sort of harks back to that original definition and and sort of the core and the genesis of impact investment, which was in private markets. And that was all based around this idea of additionality. You know, the idea of your investment being additional and that had you not invested, the company wouldn't have access to that capital. You know, in a secondary market, a lot more difficult to kind of prove that additionality. I mean, I don't, I don't think proof's really the issue. It's more, you know, what's that value add that regnant investment dollars offer to that company rather than just the broader market who are just, you know, pragmatic investors. And if it goes up, they want to they put their money in. So how do you view additionality? Yeah, it's the centerpiece of impact investing. And when we got together back in the, the, the early part of 2016, this was a world where impact investing in a global equity sense didn't exist at the time. So, you know, the biggest challenge was how do we take this concept of additionality of capital and translate it into something that is relevant to a public equity investment space? And it was a challenge that we wanted to meet because, you know, ultimately, if you look through the SDGs, for example, taking them as a broad collection of some of the major 
both environmental and social challenges that we face collectively. Ultimately, we cannot achieve those without the contributions of medium and small and even large listed equity businesses. So I think there was a realization that drove us that you know impact investing cannot be confined to very small scale investments in very obscure you know frontier markets absolutely that is important and the additionality of that capital to the receiving investor is game changing is massive but i think it takes a very different perspective when you apply it to a public equity context because what we're focused on here when we think about listed equity businesses is tying that additionality in as we've just discussed to the engagement that we do we can't invest in any company and just do nothing that would mean that we are not impact investors every investment we make in a listed equity company we need to show pre-investment we have a target we have an objective that we want to achieve during the investment that we are measuring and and ultimately achieving that target, hopefully, if, if everything goes well. And post-investment, we need to give an account to our investors of what impact through that period was actually achieved. With listed equity businesses and, and the way the industry in global equities has evolved over the years, what is also changing is the definition of additionality is broadening out to focus not just on the additionality of the capital, but actually now also to take into account the additionality generated by the company, by the corporate. So I think what's changed as the industry has grown, as the impact investing world has grown, more and more focus is being shone on the company's impact. And what difference does this particular business make through the mission that it has, through the products and services that it sells? So again, going back to what we discussed earlier, Ultimately, there are, if you like, two threads of additionality that run side by side. We are constantly trying to understand, manage, measure our own additionality as investors, which is the traditional version of additionality or the traditional definition of additionality as it evolved in the private market impact space. Alongside that, we are looking to communicate what impact these companies themselves are actually having. Very good. Look, really appreciate that. That was a, a great overview and shows that you guys have thought deeply about this. And, and just to take it a little bit further, obviously, you know, there's going to be lots of different types of companies in, in many different countries. And so their approaches are going to be very different. Some, I would assume, would have really great sustainability reports. They might even talk about the SDGs themselves and, and your systems could plug right on in. But then there might be others that, that have a great mission, but aren't really, don't really talk the language of impact, haven't really engaged with an impact investor. Do you find that, is there that diversity? And, and, and if so, how do you manage it? It's a challenge that we face because to your point, there are companies that we will invest in who, you know, they've been built from the ground up with a mission. There are other companies that we come across which have always had a mission. They've always had an aim and built a, a solution suite, built a portfolio of products and services that were 
you know, ultimately trying to deliver on that aim, but they didn't do so with any intention towards calling themselves an impactful business. Uh, you know, so absolutely, I think we, we do come across companies like that and invest in companies like that. And it doesn't make them any less important. Absolutely. You know, ultimately, these businesses are defined by their mission, by what they sell, the reason why they exist. What they all have in common is that they are focused businesses. You know, these aren't global conglomerates. These are businesses which are typically a little bit more um, off the radar. They're companies that are smaller in terms of their revenues, in terms of their cash flows. They're businesses whereby they sell a range of products that are might be diverse, but typically all directed around a collection of problem solving. You know, they are tr- businesses that are ultimately there to try and solve challenges. So that's what we do. And to your point, the, the challenge over there is trying to get all of what we need in terms of data from those companies to really understand manage and measure that impact over the course of the investment horizon, over the course of the investment period. To bring that home to people, to sort of give it a little bit more color, can you give us some examples of, of some particular companies and, and you know, maybe even the SDGs that they're aligned with and, and how you, you sort of make that connection and then even the influence that you have through your engagement and some of the, the shifts and outcomes you've, you've pushed there? Sure. So one company I often talk about is a Norwegian business called Tomra. And Tomra are a company which uh, hopefully is getting more and more prominent, at least in places like uh, New South Wales, where there's been rollout of, of what is generally known as a deposit return scheme, whereby consumers are encouraged using financial incentivization to return their empty containers, plastic, paper, aluminium containers to these recycling centers. and what Tomra sells is ultimately what you deposit these containers into, these reverse vending machines, which are able to very quickly identify what material has been deposited, sort that material into the corresponding area, and then figure out and rebate the right financial incentive, the right uh, deposit return to that consumer. It's a business whereby at the heart of what it sells are sorting and collection solutions to make recycling easier, to make recycling materials like plastic much easier. So the way we get to this is by understanding first and foremost a problem, right? So before we even think about the companies and which companies exist, we start off with understanding the challenge as defined by one or more SDGs. So if you take, for example, life underwater, life below water, SDG 14, That is one whereby going through the individual targets that underlie SDG 14, you start to realize that what we need to do is reducing the flow of single-use plastic into our oceans. And of course, all of the negative effect that that has on marine life and biodiversity. Now, there are many solutions to that challenge, right? There are many different products and services that you can identify, which are trying to contribute towards solving this particular challenge of reducing the flow of plastic into our oceans. What we will then do is try and figure out which one of those solutions, which one of those products and services is best positioned for success and is best able to do so with, if you like, the least compromise. So 
what you could do, for example, and if you think about the alternatives that are on offer here, you could take that plastic and burn it in a waste to energy plant as opposed to recycling it. That is something that we're not big fans of, right? Because as much as there are some good waste to energy technologies emerging, for the vast majority of them, waste to energy is still a process where emissions are involved. And ultimately, those GHG emissions can be comparable to actual fossil fuel production emissions. So therefore, as a solution compared to these deposit return schemes that that we discussed being rolled out in places like New South Wales, that for us is, is one which has too many compromises. If you think of other solutions to this problem of plastic flowing into our oceans, you could look for very new technologies in, say, the, the bioplastic space, whereby if these plastics did flow into our oceans, you know, they would have the technology to biodegrade rapidly and therefore rapidly reducing some of those challenges to marine life. That in itself, though, is something which is still in its infancy in terms of commercialization. And the general bioplastic space is one where, even though there are various different technologies, broadly speaking, these technologies are reliant upon agricultural inputs. So the compromise you have here is that if overnight we eradicated the world's stock of petrochemical plastics and replaced it with bioplastics, great. If those bioplastics went into the ocean, they would biodegrade very quickly and cause not zero, but less challenges towards the marine life. But what would happen creating plastics from agricultural feedstocks is that all of a sudden the demand for those feedstocks would increase rapidly and therefore so too would the prices of those agricultural commodities, of course, putting massive pressures on our food supplies. And of course, that would ultimately relate in big problems for lower income households where those food supplies ultimately made up a, a bigger proportion of their non-discretionary spend. And of course, it would also alleviate challenges like deforestation, where you know there are major problems with particular crops like palm oil, for example, driving huge rates of deforestation in, in particular areas like Southeast Asia. So without wanting to digress too far from the question, ultimately the process is one, before we even look at identifying companies, the process is one of understanding which of the solutions on offer today is best positioned to mitigate whatever environmental or social challenge as encompassed by one of these 17 sustainable development goals is best positioned to mitigate those challenges with the least compromises. Amazing. Appreciate that. You know, it really shows the interconnection of all these systems, right? You've got an environmental system, right? From the, the resources themselves, you've then got a supply chain system. You've then got a finance system, which you guys are working within. And in the more we need balance, right? And it's that that is the real challenge. And I think it shows how surface level a lot of finance has been, you know, that you've looked so far down, looked all the way to where the raw materials come from. I think that that's an interesting element of, of sort of this whole world of ESG and impact investing in the whole spectrum is that it's not a different methodology. It's just deeper. It's just more, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not a different asset class. It's simply just looking deeply into companies. And that's got to be a good thing. Absolutely. I think fundamentally, if you take aside, push aside all of the impact analysis that we do and 
you know, uh, mapping the SDGs out and understanding and managing impacts of companies. If you push aside the fundamental research we do and the depth we go into in our valuations and the expectations for return that we have for all of these companies, what we start with was a blank sheet of paper, right? And I think some, not all, but some investment had been done in a very surface level way, looking at equities as securities to be traded in and out of. And that's fine. Some people do that hugely successfully and generate a lot of value for their clients. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But we started with a blank sheet of paper and said, what if we didn't do that? What if we think about these companies as partners? What about we think about ourselves as actual owner entrepreneurs that are ultimately entrusting the stewardship of our clients' investments to these management teams. What about if we told these businesses that, look, we're not looking to do six months trades in and out of your companies. We're not looking to just think of you guys as nothing more than a ticker and a, and a share price, but actually we're looking to form you know, a long-term relationship with you where we can actually understand you know, how you are allocating our clients' capital within your management of these businesses and what you expect that capital to generate in terms of financial outcomes, in terms of financial targets, and in terms of you know, additional outcomes. There's almost a different mindset that is suited towards impact investing in a public equity context, whereby what you're looking to do is take a very different approach to how you interact with the businesses, but also more generally, a very different approach to portfolio construction. Uh, you know, As you said earlier, we have 32 stocks in the fund. We have a portfolio whereby absolutely we are going to be measured against a global equity benchmark. And absolutely, you know, we are going to be expected to perform better than other generalists, if you like, global equity funds. But at the end of the day, we are not building this portfolio with any mind whatsoever to that benchmark. We're taking, if you like, traditional concepts of managing a portfolio against a broad benchmark and almost de-emphasizing them. I'm not going to say we're throwing them out the window because while we don't use them in our portfolio construction, we still have to understand them. But ultimately, we're not building the portfolio with a mind whether we need to be more underweight or less underweight a particular region or a particular sector. What we're doing is putting together an ensemble of 32 businesses whereby we think these businesses are doing something really innovative. And we think these businesses have a technology that is suited towards solving either an environmental challenge or a social challenge that is head and shoulders above of their competitors and is unlike competing technologies and substitute products and services. Very good. Well, look, if nothing else, people are, are very aware how thorough you guys are. That was, that was amazing. The nature of your fund tends to identify companies that, that aren't the household names that, that people know. So just before I let you go, can you, can you name drop a few other companies and just a very quick uh, description of sort of what they do, you know, and any that you think have a, a really interesting product that people might not know about? Oh, that's a hard question because uh, all 32 of the companies in our portfolio are companies with really interesting products and services and doing stuff, which is great. Like you say, these are companies typically which are not your Googles and your Apples and your uh, Unilevers or Nestle's. These are companies which are much smaller in nature. You know, there's another company which I find myself talking a lot about these days because, first of all, it's a company with a, a solution at the heart of it, which can solve some of the major challenges that the US have with their water supply. So there's a company called Evoqua in our portfolio, which is uh, one of the leading companies when it comes to solving how to filter the drinking water supply in the US of some of the nasty 
chemicals that have been dumped in their drinking water supply and, and have some massive health consequences to the people that are drinking this water supply. And Evoqua is a business which has obviously been getting a lot of airtime at the moment because, well, it started actually with the, uh, the launch of a, a Hollywood movie called Dark Waters, which brought this challenge to light. And of course, more recently with the change in administration last year in the US, where the Biden administration has very much made it front and center of their agenda to try and do something about cleaning up the water supply in the US. So this company in, in the US, Evoqua, is now starting to get a lot more uh, recognition for being able to help clean these the, these aquifers of these so-called PFAS, forever chemicals, more colloquially, which are used in things like flame retardants and uh, non-stick pans to do good stuff. But then when they're discarded and when they flow into the water supply, they do tend to go into aquifers, which get drunk by the, the surrounding communities. And there's been indisputable scientific evidence that consuming these chemicals can lead to um, all sorts of adverse health effects, things like colitis, bowel cancer, a whole range, in fact, of negative health uh, outcomes. So yeah, these guys, uh, Evoqua in the US, are getting a lot more attention because finally the US is starting to address this challenge. But this is something which is still very much in its infancy and and you know we expect to play out over a sort of five to 10 year period. Very good. Thank you for all of that, Tim. I'm, I'm going to have to let you go. Really appreciate all of that depth from the the frameworks and your your impact philosophy right down to to some particular companies and and the the impact they're having on the ground. I think it's great. And thank you. We'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Great to chat. Thanks, Tim. Cheers. Information in this podcast is not intended as financial advice. If there has been mention of financial products, it should not be taken as a recommendation and it shouldn't be relied upon. It does not take into account the investment objectives, financial situation or the particular needs of any potential investor. You should consider obtaining independent advice before making any financial decisions. If you're in Australia, you can visit moneysmart.gov.au for more details.